Welcome to a special episode of this podcast, Which Decade is Tops for Eurovision? So the Magic Randomizer has given us a year suffix of three and a chart position of two. So we will be looking at Eurovision runners-up from 1963, 1973, all the way through to 2013. And as always, we'll be asking you, our listeners, to vote for your favourites. And I will give you all the details on how to vote at the end of this episode. We have playlists. We always have playlists, so you can listen along with us. These are tinyurl.com forward slash 23Y for YouTube, 23S for Spotify, 23E for our extra tracks and bonus bits. Now, the YouTube playlist, what happens there is it starts with the recorded studio versions of each of the six songs and then they're followed by the actual eurovision live performances so you can make a full and fair assessment of the qualities of the songs the extras playlist you get short recap medleys of all the performances from each of the six contests so that should give you a general flavor of what each year was like as a whole there's been some great youtubers out there who put some really good medleys together and i need to give you a word of warning about the spotify playlist this is the first time it's happened but one of the songs is not on Spotify. It's actually the first song from 1963. I've substituted it with an instrumental karaoke version, best I could do, but obviously it's not ideal. So if you want to hear the original, YouTube is your friend. Unfortunately, Trev can't be with us for this episode. So rather than fire up the Trev bot, we've recruited a special guest to cover for him. Some of you may remember him from the results bulletin. Welcome to the show, Chris Higgins. Hello. Bonsoir, guten tag, shalom. Chris, I know you're a lifelong Eurovision fan. I know you've attended many of the live shows in person. Off the top of your head, can you remember how many you've been to or are there too many to count? No, I oh know it's 10. 10. <laughs> so the first one was? Birmingham 98, 25th anniversary coming up next week. And um, what was the last one? Dusseldorf 2011. I've only been a mere five times myself. Nick, you've never been to Eurovision, is that right? I am desperate to go to eurovision and have never been it is quite high on my bucket list of things to do i thought this year might be the year but obviously tickets just sold out in about a nanosecond didn't they so it's become progressively harder to get a ticket when i was at Tallinn in 2002 for eurovision i actually got a ticket for the final by walking up to the box office on the day of the show and buying a ticket there those days will never return <laughs> Best advice, get a press pass. That's what Chris did. Yep, that's what I did. I was watching it the other day. And, you know, obviously these days it's in giant arenas and the show is incredible. And they've been building the stage in Liverpool for about four weeks, haven't they? And all that sort of thing. I was watching an old contest the other day that was held in a horse centre in a village of 1,500 people. It's like, wh where did everyone stay? Like, how? And that was in the 90s. In Cork, and they were bust in and out. They hated it. It was in a converted stables, basically. People said it smelt of horse poo as well. And Mike, obviously, you you live in the vicinity of a town that has hosted Eurovision, I believe. Just down the road. I am seven minutes away by train from the Harrogate Convention Centre, which hosted Eurovision in 1982, compared by Jan Leeming. 
and one by Nicole with Ambition Frieden. Yeah, it's great. I bask in its glow. And I'm just up the road from the Birmingham venue. Shall we crack on? Yes. Let's crack on, starting as we always do with... The 60s. This is Torvapa by Esther Afarim, representing Switzerland. Torvapa translates into English as don't go or don't leave. The 1963 Eurovision was held in London. It was hosted by the legendary Katie Boyle. This was the second of four appearances that she made as a Eurovision host. The UK entry was Say Wonderful Things by Ronnie Carroll, which finished in fourth place. The winning country was Denmark. They were represented by Greta and Jürgen Ingmann, who performed the song Danse Visa. Switzerland have won Eurovision twice. They won at the very first contest in 1956 with Lys Assias Rofra. Got that. And in 1988 with Celine Dion's Ne Passe Pas Sans Moi. They've come last eight times, but that's not the worst total because Norway have finished last 11 times. As for Esther Afarim, she went on to have two UK hits in 1968 as part of a duet with her husband at the time, Abby Afarim, most notably with Cinderella Rockefeller, which reached number one. Obviously, I wasn't even born when this has happened. And we're, we're, what are we, seven years into the contest by this point? And I feel that having listened to some of the songs that won in the run up and having the absolute pleasure of watching this entire contest in full the other day, I don't think it had evolved very far by this point. Bearing in mind that the Beatles existed by this stage, the UK didn't really, well, I don't think anybody had, but the UK particularly hadn't really caught up by this point. We were still sending these politely dressed, hair-parted crooner types. It it seems to me we're so far away from, well, not just the UK, so far away from what pop music was about to become it just seems to me totally weird it seems like the sort of contest your grandparents might have watched on a saturday night because lovely katie boyle was hosting it the quality of the songs in the entire show i think is very weak it's a bit like all, all of those songs that we've had on previous episodes where we've had them from the early 60s your anthony newley's your paul and paula yeah, Paul and Paul. Exactly. It's a lot of that, isn't it? It is a lot of very beige, very talented vocalists, really good singers, because obviously in those, well, I don't think it's ever stopped. They just imported people, didn't they? I mean, Monaco got Francois Hardy in and uh, I think Luxembourg got Nana Mascori in. People were just importing well-known singers to do their thing for them. So the vocalists are great. And actually, the staging is not bad for the early 60s. They use a boom mic, so they're not having to hold a mic, which is quite weird, I think, for that time. The song that won it this year, the Danish entry that won it, is the only one that tries to do something different. It sounds like a B-grade Bacharach. It actually does sound different to the others, which are much of a muchness, mid-paced, croony, you know, say wonderful things like I love you in... 12 different European languages, essentially. So I think Tom Vapa, I think she's great. Estra Farm, I think her vocals are great. I think the song is fine. Amongst this selection, it's okay. Didn't deserve to win. What I liked most about the episode was what a colossal shambles the voting was. It was one of the, uh, I think, still the most enduringly controversial contests because your Norwegian man, when they went to Norway for the votes, completely ballsed it up. 
and poor Katie Boyle had to sort of swiftly move on. But they didn't update the scoreboard. So it goes right through to the end and Switzerland have won the contest. They have more points than Denmark. They are the winners. It's like deal or no deal. She's got a massive white telephone on the table in front of her. She picks up the telephone live on telly to Europe and she's like, hello. Okay. Right, we're going back to Norway, Oslo calling, and they have to go back to Norway, and the Norwegian guy redoes their votes. And as they redo their votes, they deduct some points from Switzerland and add some points to Denmark. And it looks incredibly suspicious, because all of a sudden, Denmark have won the contest, and Switzerland have come second. And then the phone goes again, and Katie answers the phone. Is that the final results? Yes, okay. That is the final results. And you can hear in the background murmuring. And I don't know where it's coming from, whether it's the people in the venue, in the television centre. You can hear kind of disgruntled murmuring going on because it looks like something is afoot. I mean, if you've got an hour and a half, watch the whole thing. It's magnificent in an early 60s kind of way. If you haven't watched the voting for the last 10 minutes, I mean, you think it's bad these days. It is a shambles and hilarious. I don't think this was a golden era for the contest, I'll be perfectly honest, at least not from this selection. Just before I hand over to you, Chris, it's interesting what you say about the telephone on the desk. I'm old enough to remember when typically TV presenters did have telephones on their desks and the telephones would ring in the middle of the broadcast and the presenter would take the call. Often happened on news bulletins. It was just like, excuse me, Great Britain, the phone's wrong. And they're going, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah, I'll tell them that they hang up and then they continue as we've quite rough edged that early phase of tv massive kudos to katie boyle who is the ultimate pro during this entire shambles just absolutely totally professional on live television to the whole of europe which if it wasn't sam fox and mick fleetwood then that voting sequence at the end of 63 is one of the tv moments that made katie boyle's name it was her second time hosting eurovision she knew what she was doing, and she just seems completely unflappable in a situation which had gone very wrong. At the end of what was the regular voting, she said, all the votes are in, but they're not quite right. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and you could see that, because like you said, it, it did seem to show that Switzerland had won, and she knew they hadn't, so that's why she queried it. That's how on the ball she was. She wasn't just relying on what was in front of her. Let's talk about the song. So the song is, I think, a really lovely French crooning song. And as you say, the contest well into the 60s was still a Eurovision crooning competition. We tried to make it a bit of fun by doing Sing Little Birdie in the 50s, but it was still a bit out of date. Actually, to be fair, we had entered the Allisons, which was pop music in 61, but it took a long time. The look of Esther of her own singing Tom Vapa is very much like every 60s French pop star. She pegs herself to a doorway while she sings the song for reasons that I don't quite understand. But as you say, they were using a boom mic and they couldn't really move very much. So they had to keep it out of shot. They used two studios because the BBC was trying to be clever. And the artists were in a separate room from where the scoreboard was. And there's always been a suspicion that's been denied by the BBC and EBU that some of those performances were actually pre-recorded and they weren't live, but they maintained that they were all live. Her vocal performance of that song, I think, is absolutely stunning. It's a stunning performance of a sort of average croony song. It's got some quite dramatic lines in the lyric for those who were understanding French at the time. The thing that really struck me was how good her French pronunciation is. 
which then led me to think, well, how? How is this Israeli singer so good at French? But the answer, and this relates to what you said about them shipping people in, Esther and Abby actually lived in Geneva at this point. So it wasn't really a major shock that they were representing Switzerland. There, there was some legitimacy. It wasn't like some of the others, people who've been shipped into countries they've never been to. <laughs> so that was why. And the outcome of that voting seems to have confused her or she feels that she's the moral victim because she's given interviews since in which she talks about my Eurovision victory in London. <laughs> so she either remembers it wrongly and thinks she did win or she thinks she has some kind of moral victory because it does seem that the Norwegian jury changed their vote knowing what was coming to allow Denmark to win. So I think in a way she has every right. Yeah, decent song, nothing to write home about, but um, a good start to these five. Also, she's still very much with us at time of recording. She's 81. I now have a vision of Esther O'Farham, aged 81, sort of like Miss Havisham, still thinking that she's won 1963 Eurovision, still in her frock, waiting to go up and collect her awards while her house is decaying around her. Anyway, I actually own an Esther O'Farham single. It's from 1973. It's called I'm Your Woman. And I've been trying to sell it on Discogs for the past six years and I've not had any takers. In fact, it's never sold to anybody on Discogs. Mine's a promo copy, but it can still be yours for just £1.25. It's a very nice single, but not as nice as Tom Vapar. I think this is absolutely lovely. I suppose he bracketed as chanson. That's not a style of music I know a great deal about, but this strikes me as a fine example. It's well-constructed. It's lyrically poetic. It's beautifully sung, convincingly performed, without hammering the emotion home too hard. I think these early Eurovision performances are notable for their comparative restraint compared to all the overwrought divas that were to come in later years. I have a side note on this 1963 show, and it's, it's a style note. A lot of the female singers have a particular early 60s hairdo, which drops straight down to the shoulders and then it curves up again all the way along the bottom. Well, my mother had a hairdo like that as well in the early 60s. And I think a lot of her friends must have had them as well. Because when I was a little boy, I thought that was how all ladies' hair naturally fell. I had no idea that implements were used to construct the curve. So whenever I drew a picture of a lady as a little boy, she always had that straight hair that curled up at the bottom. Very easy for a young child to draw. I might have struggled with later styles. The asymmetric bob might have been a challenge. So, yeah, strong start to the episode. I was expecting absolute wall-to-wall syrupy corn from this era of Eurovision. So this one came as a pleasant surprise. I think you're right. The quality of the performances in this particular one is superb. Everybody is brilliant. Even in the sense that you can't imagine that the audio equipment and stuff was particularly fantastic at that point. So for everybody to come out of it sounding as magnificent as they did, I think was quite a thing i was interesting as well that the scandies hadn't really found their feet at this point i mean i know that denmark won this particular one norway sweden and finland all got no point in this particular edition so yeah shall we progress let's jump forward to the 70s so our song from the 1973 eurovision is rf2 by mosedades representing spain The title translates into English as It's You. 
The band name translates into English as youths, or maybe, using a freer translation, the young ones. Spain have won Eurovision twice. First in 1968 with Maciel's La La La, and then again in the following year in 1969, but that was part of a four-way tie that also included Lulu's Boom Banga Bang for the UK. The 1973 Eurovision was held in Luxembourg. It was won by the host nation with Anne-Marie David's Tuto Reconnetra. That became a UK hit as um, Wonderful Dream. The UK entry, Power to All Our Friends by Cliff Richard, finished in third position. Now, although RF2 didn't chart in the UK, it was a big hit all across Europe and also outside Europe. Got to number nine in the USA in its Spanish language version, incidentally, number six in Canada, number three in New Zealand. It's been covered numerous times since, sometimes in Spanish and sometimes in an English language version called Touch the Wind. So obviously the really striking thing about Eres 2 is that it seems to be based on Elvis Presley's Can't Help Falling in Love. You just can't help singing along to that. So regardless of any accusations of plagiarism or anything, I regard this too as a Eurovision classic. It's one that's always been in the clips of Eurovision contests. That 1973 stage is so sort of bright and bold with the 70s writing on the set behind them and the orchestra in full view. I, I absolutely love it. I love the look of it. I love the way that all of the six members of the band get there moments in the limelight whether it's the singing or the guitar playing it's also interesting that they're lined up as two men two women in the middle and two men park that thought we'll come back to it later but i do love it and i can't really say much more about the song other than it's just wonderfully catchy it has a sort of hippie sing-along element to it which i guess is something that also appealed to a seven-year-old and i've adored it ever since are you talking about the can't help falling in love thing I mean, that is the first thing that you hear. If you've never heard the song before and you put it on, the first thing that you will do is you'll think, hang on a minute, it is the same tune, it's the same melody, or at least it starts as the same melody. I think what's interesting with it as well is that there were that at the time they were also accused of plagiarising it from a former Eurovision track. So if you go back to 1966, a uh, slightly obscure Yugoslavian entry called Brez Besed, sung by Berta Ambrose and I would encourage anybody if you're interested in this sort of thing to go and listen to that that and Eris 2 are very very similar right from the opening chords of it you think hang on a minute and you know back in those days there wasn't a lot of plagiarism lawsuits flying around I think had those two things come around today there would be a court case because those two things are extremely similar I I'm too young to remember this, but it feels like this is either the start or the middle of a bit of a golden era for the Eurovision in terms of the quality. We're a year away from ABBA winning it, aren't we, here at this point? I think the top three songs this year, the eventual winner, the Luxembourg, this and the Cliff Richard song are fantastic. And I know the voting was close. There was only, I think, four or five points separating the top three in this, so it ended up being a very close-run thing. And I think that any of those three songs having won it would have been very, very worthy winners. I didn't know this until it came up the other day, and I agree with Chris. I love this. It is one of those songs that is almost all chorus. Mm. So once you've heard the first line of it, you can basically sing the rest of it. And that feels like something at Eurovision that is successful. I think if you can sing a Eurovision song, having heard it once, and you can sing along with it by the end, 
then I think that is often a route to success because when the voting comes up and you think, oh, I remember that one because I could sing it at the end. It's like this year's. I've been listening to this year's. Some of them I can sing to you now and a lot of them I can't. So when the voting comes round, I'm more likely to vote for those ones that I could sing back to. And I think this one, because it starts with basically a chorus and just is chorus repetitive all the way through, it just makes it incredibly sort of anthemic in a way. I wasn't aware of it. It has immediately gone on my best of Eurovision playlist. I think it's terrific. Spain have a spectacularly poor record, don't they, at Eurovision on the whole. I mean, they won it twice in the 60s. I mean, I know they came third in 2022, but they haven't really looked like winning for a long time. People have a go at us and say that we're terrible at it. But, you know, they've won for 50 odd years. I'm with Chris. I love it. Yeah, I think it's worth underlining here just how big a song NF2 was. Not to give you any spoilers about what's to come, but this is by far and away the biggest hit of the songs that we'll cover in this episode. And people in the UK might be surprised at that because it never charted here. But in plenty of other countries, it's seen as a standard, almost as much as Volare, another much earlier Eurovision entry. So clearly it has some strengths. It's sturdy, it's confident, it's extremely catchy without ever becoming irritating. I like the group's performance. They look engaged with the song. They're about as classy as it's reasonably possible to be at Eurovision in 1973. I think the lead singer in particular is hugely endearing and likeable. I did watch this at the time all the way through with my grandmother. We were cheering on Cliff. We were perfectly happy with Anne-Marie David winning. I don't remember RF2 from back then, have to say. Plenty of people talk about the following year's winning song, Abba's Waterloo as changing the course of Eurovision. But I think you could sort of make a case for NF2 being equally influential, just not in such a headline-grabbing way. There are loads more of these emphatically anthemic ensemble pieces that will follow in its wake. When I listen to the 1983 recaps, even when I listen to the 1993 recaps, I can still hear lingering echoes of this song. Finally, Speaking again as a Discogs vinyl seller, I can tell you that LF2 is a good deal more collectible than Ton Va Pas. I never owned a copy of the Mosidades version, but I have sold three other versions. There's a version by the song's actual composer, Juan Carlos Calderon, sold that for £4.50. UK English language cover by Wheeler St. James, sold that for £2.50. Another UK cover by Landscape, not the Einstein and Go-Go Landscape, early Landscape, sold that for £1.45. And if you look at the extras playlist, I've put a stripped-down version where Juan Carlos Calderon, the composer, is sat at the piano. None other than Johnny Mathis is on vocals. That's how big a song it was. Let us skip on to... This is the Israeli entry performed by Ofra Haza. The name of the song is Hai. This was sung in Hebrew and the Hai in the title is nothing to do with saying hello to anybody. Although it's usually spelled H-I, it actually translates into English as alive. Israel have won Eurovision four times. 1978, Isar Cohen with Abani B. Again, the following year with Milk and Honey and Hallelujah. Then in 1998 with Dana International's Diva, most recently in 2018 with Netta and Toy. So three of those were years with eight on the end, I've just noticed. 
1983 Eurovision was staged in Munich. Its winner, 10 years after Anne-Marie David, brought it home for Luxembourg. Luxembourg won again with Turin Emmer's Si la vie est cadeau. The UK entry, I'm Never Giving Up by Sweet Dreams, came in sixth position. Not so great for the UK at that time, although, of course, worse was to follow. Ofra Hasa eventually had a number 15 hit in the UK five years later with Imnin Alu. This had already been sampled on the Colcut remix of Eric B and Rakim's Paid in Full, which had charted in late 1987. I watched the entire 1983 contest a couple of days ago, and God, I haven't had this much fun in a long time. <laughs> what I love, and I would absolutely encourage you if you've got a couple of hours to watch it, it is we're still in the territory where everybody pretty much is singing in their native language. There was a period in the 2000s onwards where if you weren't singing in English, you weren't going to win. And that has been slightly reversed in the last couple of years with Portugal and with Italy and, and a couple of others. But there was a period for about 15 years where you had to sing in English to win. 1983, that is not the case, right? There's all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff going on here. What is also great about it is we talked about the 63 contest and it's a lot of very similar songs, chansonny, croonery songs sung by different crooners. By this point, you've got a little bit of everything. You've got the German entry, which is essentially sort of toto light with uh, Rocksicht which is that kind of sort of soft rock you associate with the Germans from the 80s. You've got the UK, who, having won with a colourful pop group, had decided that that was the way we were just going to go every year. We'd add Bucks Fizz, we'd add Bardo. Now we've sent another three colourfully dressed 20-somethings with blonde hair and a, an incredibly upbeat pop song. That actually, I think, was probably kiboshed by how early it was in the draw but actually probably deserved to do slightly better than it did the backdrop looks like someone's building a factory it's just this sort of industrial i don't know what it is it's like girders the poor german woman introducing it has just had to rearrange a load of flowers in the shape of flags in between each performance she's just had to move some roses around if there's red in a flag Honestly, it is brilliant. It's still in the days where they've got old men, balding men with mullets to conduct the orchestra. Oh, it is absolute peak 80s Eurovision, and I absolutely loved it. It's a great year. There are lots of great songs in this contest. I think Ofra Hazard, the high we're talking about here, is brilliant. It's become an incredible earworm, the chorus, just won't go away that has been going on for days i genuinely think it would have been a very very popular and enduring winner this had it gone on and won in the moment watching it i was thinking why is this luxembourg won one but having heard it repeatedly since then it is a very solid song and i think she sings it really well so i think it is a sort of deserved winner the swedish song that comes third framling is magnificent absolutely magnificent so it's a great year i think she does a great job with this and again it's a close contest she was winning for a lot of the way she only ended up i think six points behind it was she was winning for quite a lot of it it was a neck and neck it went right down to the wire again terry is on top form on the commentary there's some absolute bonkers stuff in it the spanish entry is absolute madness it's got a little bit of everything this song 
is great if you don't know it honestly seek it out it's really catchy i mean it's sung in hebrew so you won't have a clue what's going on she sings it really well she performs it really well on the night the performance of it within the confines of what you could do in those days which was basically some lighting is great i enjoyed watching it so much that i have decided that if i've got nothing to do on a saturday night from this point forwards i am just going to pick a random year and watch a eurovision on youtube I enjoyed it that much that it has sort of changed my life. Good man. And we have Ofra Hazard to thank. Excellent. So pleased to hear all that. Nick. So the 1983 Eurovision really stands out for me. It is partly because of that set, like you say, but also it's the year where I went all multimedia and I taped the whole contest. So I've played 83 many, many times over the years because I've got the whole thing on a cassette. Still got it somewhere. It's the first year where I know all the songs. I was in love with one of the other songs, but let's stick with High, first of all. If this had been sung in English, it would have been deemed quite controversial and possibly disallowed, or they might have had to change them, because one of the lines in it, like you said, High means alive, not hello. And the line, Am Israel, High means Israel still exists. You can read more into the rest of the lyric if you look at the English translation and they are making a point. But it's all dressed up as a very jolly, choreographed pop song. And the word that I was thinking of when I was thinking about the choreography, first of all, was tight. And I don't mean it's tight choreography as in really brilliant and in sync. I mean tight as in really crammed together on the stage. The peculiar thing about that stage is that they've put so much effort into putting those pallets or radiators or whatever they are in the background that they've hardly left any stage. It's really shallow from front to back. So Israel has come along with this dance routine where they do a lot of moving backwards and forwards and side to side dancing. But they look petrified that if they move too far to the front, they're going to fall into the orchestra pit, which I think was probably a genuine fear because there really isn't much room to go. And although the dance routine's all very jolly, if you watch it over and over again, it's really not very in sync. But it's a great, catchy song. And, and like you say, it was it was so different from the winner. So it's, it's very hard to compare. You've got your epic ballad jury members voting for Luxembourg and you've got people appreciating pop songs, voting for Israel, which is why it was so close. My pick from 83, and this was a real um, standout for me, was Yugoslavia's Julie by Daniel Popovich that I actually bought from a record shop. <laughs> and the reason was, I really fancied Daniel and I thought it was a really catchy song. Watching it again now makes me wonder why I fancied him quite so much, but still, hormones and all that. So I very embarrassedly went into my local record shop. Can you go to Yugoslavia and Eurovision song? Without really saying, because I think this is gorgeous. But they ordered it for me and I, I got it. It never troubled the UK charts, but I did own a copy. And I suppose that in a way is what started off the Eurovision collecting of vinyl to a certain extent. It is a terrific song as well. Yes. I think it was very unlucky. I don't know why it didn't get closer than it did. Well... I've never seen 1983 Eurovision in four. I first saw Eurovision in 1968. That was, um, congratulations, Cliff Richard, because it was on at an earlier time when I was six years old, so it wasn't after my bedtime. Then I missed it a couple of years because it was past my bedtime. Then 71 to 81, watched every single Eurovision. 82, I had to miss it for various reasons. By the time I got to 1983, I was well into my... 21-year-olds too cool for school phase. And I was way too cool to be sitting at home on a Saturday night when I could be out clubbing, watching Eurovision. And in fact, 
I ducked out of Eurovision from that point for almost the entire duration of the 1980s. I think I saw it once by accident, very drunk, and was basically rolling on the floor, clutching my sides with hysterical laughter. So this is a beginning of a period where I actually tuned out of Eurovision. I did love Ofra Hasa when Imnin Alu became a hit in 1988. I bought its parent album, Yemenite Songs. I was really into world music at the time. Well, I've always been really into world music for that matter. I had her down as a serious advocate of Yemenite culture, who was fusing traditional forms with contemporary production styles in a way that absolutely fully met my approval. And so because I was on this extended Eurovision hiatus and there was no internet, I absolutely no idea that you come second in 1983. This changed in spring 1989. Three of us went to visit an Israeli friend who lived in Tel Aviv. And of course, we all had to tell him how much we loved Ofra Haza. Our friends was utterly amazed and bemused because as far as he was concerned, she was this lightweight, light entertainment hack. She was always popping up on these cheesy TV variety shows. As far as he was concerned, she had no artistic worth whatsoever. And that's when we found out. And we were as amused and amazed as our Israeli host was to find out that she'd ever done Eurovision. I'm not going to make any grandiose artistic claims for high as a frothy little confection, but I like the fact it's uncompromisingly Israeli rather than trying to be European. And yeah, it is quite a patriotic song. I didn't really read that as problematic. I just thought it was saying, hello, I'm from Israel. It's great to be from Israel. I could be wrong. There's something about the performance that I find disarmingly charming. Ofra Haza really does perform it so well. Really strong vocals, confident, charismatic stage presence. The arrangement retains my interest all the way through. This is a really particularly deft middle eight section. Everything is very well put together. Looking through the 1983 recaps, which to my mind mostly aren't great. Also, what was with all those rara skirts? They were well on their way out by then. I can see why this did so well. And I like it a lot more than the winning song by Corinne Hermes, which to my mind is one of the dullest and most unmemorable Eurovision winners I've ever heard. You've got me curious now. Maybe I'll watch it back, but I might be watching it ironically. We'll come to that again as well. Israel have a really surprisingly good record as well, mm. don't they? I mean, they've won it four times. For what you'd call a sort of smaller country, they have done pretty well. They've won it twice as many times as Spain have over the years and they only started it in, in the 70s didn't they so yeah let's move on to the 90s. this is Sonia for the United Kingdom with Better the Devil You Know UK have won Eurovision five times most recently in 1997 with Katrina and the Waves Love Shine a Light they have also come last five times most recently in 2021, with James Newman's Embers, which received Nul Point. They've also finished in second place 16 times, which is more than any other country. And after a gap of 24 years, they finished second last year with Sam Ryder's Spaceman. 1993 Eurovision was held in Mill Street in Ireland, and it was won by Ireland. That was In Your Eyes by Neve Kavanagh. 
As for Sonia, this was her last of 11 top 40 hits. It peaked at number 15. But her first single in 1989, You'll Never Stop Me From Loving You, was her only UK number one. If people think that some people do Eurovision at the end of their career or that Eurovision kills off their career, then Sonia obviously is the example to use because it does seem to prove that point. She had been so successful up to that point. But this song was just a little bit different, was it? I mean, I wouldn't say it was exactly breaking the mould from Socket Kim Waterman songs. It seemed like it was going to win, and lots of people, certainly in the UK, thought that it was going to, but she wasn't that close in the end. When you watch the performance of it, it is a really good performance of a pop song, actually. And what I really noticed, looking back on it now, is that when Sonia first hit the scene, she did seem very young and energetic and girly. But when you watch the Eurovision performance, even though it is a really upbeat pop song, she actually looks quite sophisticated. She looks great. She's wearing an outfit sort of blue trouser suit, jumpsuit. I'm not a fashion expert, that I think wouldn't look out of place if someone wore it now. And what makes me laugh about the performance is a sort of lack of coordination from and with the backing singers. If they ever rehearsed their movements, then the choreographer should have been sacked because it just looks like a rehearsal to me. But Sonia herself is brilliant and does a great rendition of a brilliant song. I never thought Neve's song was good enough to win at the time. I tell you that back now. I've met Neve. I'm a friend of hers on Facebook, but I've met her at a subsequent Eurovision and she's really lovely. I will say the obvious thing, this isn't even my favourite pop song called Better Than You Know because the Kylie one is much better than this, let's face it. Yeah, so having absolutely spectacularly enjoyed the 1983 contest and the weirdness and all the bits and pieces of it, the 93 contest to me is rubbish. I don't know whether it was just a symptom of holding it in a converted stables, but the quality is terrible. The staging is dark. There used to be a men's clothing chain called Foster's. I don't know whether anybody remembers this from the 80s. And the whole stage and the whole production of it looks like the inside of Foster's. I don't think it's the fault of the Irish. You know, the production was the production, and perhaps that was what was popular at the time. But the whole thing looks slightly dark, and the quality of the songs, I think, is pretty poor. I mean, you've even got, I mean, Fry Height turn up. So Keeping the Dream Alive by Fry Height is a great song from 1988, just reached the UK top 20. They turn up, and even their song is rubbish. It is boring and dreary. And these are an established act that ought to be doing better than this. Sonia, how on earth did it finish second? Surely in any other year, it would have been nowhere, would it? I think even the winner is fine, but it is not an enduring classic of Eurovision, is it? We've had this on the podcast in the past where songs, you know, in a tough week get nil point, whereas in other weeks would get lots of points. And I feel that the 1993 contest was a bit like that. A lot of it is just incredibly mediocre. There's hardly anything exotic to get excited about in the entire thing. And Sonia's Bet the Devil You Know is about as much fun as anybody is having in rural Ireland on a windy May night in 1993. So I think she does a perfectly fine job of it. I think it is an okay song. But even me, right? Even me, Stock Aitken Autumn's number one fan, who you'd have thought that Sonia was squarely in my things that I would like. Even I find this a little bit annoying. So well done for finishing second. 
But I think in any other year, she'd have been mid-table at best. I think that's all perfectly true. There weren't really that many memorable songs. The song that's probably made the biggest impression with fans, it was the sixth song, Freda by Ruth Jakob. And yeah, there isn't really anything that's had any long-lasting cultural significance further down the scoreboard from that 93 contest. That is perfectly true. Yeah, uh, Nick, I hear you very much on this. I had started watching Eurovision again by the early 1990s, but I was still watching it ironically, with a large side order of eye-rolling and piss-taking. If the contest had slumped in the 1980s, which I felt it did, then we weren't yet out of that slump. And I found, of all the recaps I've watched of these six shows, I found the 1993 cap the hardest to get through. I mean, it's only about 11 or 12 minutes, but it was still a struggle. I mean, Eurovision might never have been a cutting-edge representation of contemporary pop, to put it mildly. But these 1993 songs, they seem to inhabit a completely different planet. It all feels tired and old and stuck in its ways and seemingly unable to evolve. That did start rapidly changing in the second half of the 1990s, but there are no early signs of it here. So... Faced with this morass of turgid gloop, that's what I've written here, morass of turgid gloop, I can see why Sonia's performance did stand out from the pack. There's a spring in her step, there's a twinkle in her eye, she's enough of a trooper to turn a third-rate song into a second-place triumph. And let's make no bones about it, it really is a third-rate song. It feels specifically constructed as someone's idea of what a Eurovision song should sound like, but whose ideas of what a Eurovision song should sound like were still stuck in 1981. The UK have made this mistake a lot since the Bucksfield's glory days. And there's been something slightly contemptuous about the way we've tossed our scraps at Johnny Foreigner in the misplaced assumption that they'll love us as much as they did in the days of up it on a string and boom, bang, bang, and making your mind up. With that in mind, I can see why the powers that be plumped for Sonia. A seasoned showbiz hoofer in the old tradition of British seasoned showbiz hoofers. She could be depended on to gamely bounce up and down and mug along to chirpy drivel like this. Poor old Sonia. She never had another hit. Was it all worth it? I wonder. Mind you, she's going to be in Liverpool, isn't she, old Sonia? They've exhumed her. I'm Frankie. She is. She's part of the Interval Acts next week in one of the shows. Oh, that was worth the wait, eh, Sonia? <laughs> to be fair, she's been performing ever since. The hits may have dried up, but um, she has a career. I think she's done some musicals, hasn't she? But, you know, she's one of those people who's never stopped singing. And she's a great ambassador for pop music and for Liverpool. And if you ever went to a Pride event in the 1990s, you absolutely couldn't avoid Sonia. It was kind of mandatory. <laughs> But Sonia would be there, along with Nicky French, also Eurovision royalty. Anyway, let's move on to... The this is Sanami by Urban Trad, representing Belgium. Poor old Belgium, only won Eurovision once. That was in 1986 with Sandra Kim's Je me la vie. And also, like Switzerland, they've come last eight times. 2003 Eurovision was held in Riga, capital of Latvia. It was won by Turkey. That was every way that I can by Sertab Arena. The UK was represented by Gemini, performing Crybaby, 
It finished last, earning nul point the first time either thing had ever happened to the UK. Now, if you're wondering what Sanami means, well, means about as much as la 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 and diggy do diggy lay. All the lyrics are written in an imaginary language. They carry no literal meaning whatsoever. So think of Sanami as a tone poem, if you will. 20 years ago, the Eurovision Song Contest turned up in Latvia. And I don't know whether this is when it started, but it seems to me that the current Eurovision looks a lot like it did in 2003. So a lot of the staging, a lot of the presentation, a lot of the postcards in between the songs and stuff hasn't changed much in that. You can see a lot of the modern Eurovision in the 2003 edition. What has happened by this point is that it had gone from being lots of weird people turning up in their own language and singing essentially regional culturally specific songs to a pop contest 2003 was very much a lot of pop music a lot of it in english a lot of it sounding like the pop music at the time you know the netherlands sang in english the ukraine sang in english greece sang in english norway sang in english estonia sang in english so we'd reached the stage where you could argue that it had become more generic because the songs had sort of narrowed to a much closer representation of what pop music sounded like in Europe by that point. So there isn't a lot of variety in this edition, but I think the overall quality of the stuff had risen. I mean, the Swedish entry is great, but it sounds like steps, right? Let's not beat about the bush. It is early 2000s steps basically. And a lot of it this year does sound like this. It's very slickly produced, the contest. It's very entertaining. There is a novelty act who, because it was all done by Televote in those days, ended up coming sixth, I think, even though it was absolute garbage. But because it was basically done by a Televote. Good old Alf. We love Alf, don't we? Mike's going to tell us that he loves Alf here. But the exception to this is the absolute travesty of this belgian entry so belgium in recent years have i i don't always like their entries but they god bless them do try and do something different and i don't know whether this is why they don't win because they're not coming along with a fairly average standard three minute song they have come in recent years with little bits of dance and little bits of interesting production and unusual songs that maybe you either love it or you hate it and that's why they don't do so well perhaps but they are always an interesting country this right so we're in 2003 urban trad bring out the bloody accordion and the bagpipes and the tin whistle and god knows what else the origin of this to me sounds like enigma right and for those of you who remember early 90s german don't even know what genre it is they had a number one i think with sadness and they had a hit with return to innocence and it was this sort of slightly weird electronic world music maybe with sort of chanting and all that sort of thing um they had some interesting albums that were just one long song of weirdness and this sounds a lot like that with lyrics and an invented language and you just want to go jog on belgium with your invented language and your 10 years out of date pan pipes Terry, during the commentary, is absolutely flabbergasted that this has got anywhere near winning. He can't control himself. He just has no idea 
why this is doing so well in the voting. And I'm sort of with him because I don't know why it's doing so well in the voting either, because there's a lot better songs in the contest than this. It was about to win. It was 13 points ahead of Turkey, who ended up winning it, with two rounds of voting to go, right? It was almost a nailed-on winner and was literally overtaken right at the end. I think the last country to vote gave it three, and they gave Turkey however many it needed to win. The Turkey song that won it is, again, it won it because Kiss Kiss had been a massive European hit 12 months earlier, I think, essentially. And people were like, oh, it's that Kiss Kiss song again. Is it the same one? It sounds a lot like it. So that was fresh enough in the memory that I was having a cultural moment, I think, which is what dragged the Turkish one over the line. Tattoo ended up coming third, I think, that year, which at least their song was trying to do something slightly different. I mean, they were bratty and awkward, and they were already well-known because they'd had their hit, all the things she said, before this. So I think it's a great show. It's beautifully produced. There's loads of great stuff in it, but this Belgian one is rubbish. I just cannot stand it. I think it's 10 years out of date. I think it's boring, repetitive, and I don't ever want to hear it again. So you liked it, really? <laughs> Not really, no. Fair enough. Right. So out of the six years we're covering today, this is the one that I was at. That doesn't mean I have more to say about these, but I was in that hall while this was going on. The big story of 2003 was that Tattoo were in it, and it, it was a really big thing that the band who'd been the major pop hit of the previous 12 months were actually going to be in Eurovision. And it's a time that I felt there was a turning point, actually, where people did start to to see that you could be commercial and then you could think of Eurovision in the same breath rather than do it either before you're famous or afterwards or to kill off your career, that's on you did. Tattoo were the big draw. No one thought their song was amazing, but they were a bit of a media event being trailed around by everybody, including me wherever they went, and being controversial because of the lesbianism and the holding hands. Some of it may not be real, but that was the image they were portraying. It was obvious that their song wasn't as good as all the things she said. In fact, that whole album. And amongst all the media world of Tattoo and us following Gemini, obviously not knowing they were going to come last, no one was paying any attention to Urban Trad. And in the course of preparing for this, I asked six of my friends who were at Eurovision Riga with me what Urban Trad were up to and if they had any stories or gossip from the week that we were there. And no one's got anything. I probably went to their press conferences. I don't remember anything they said. They didn't go to parties. They didn't, as far as I know, do any impromptu gigs or PAs during the week. I think we thought that because their song was in an imaginary language, we weren't taking it very seriously. And certainly amongst the people that I was with, they just didn't exist. So I think even in the hall on the night, I probably wasn't paying much attention to it. I thought it was nice. I thought it sounded like a lovely Irish folk tune. And that was about it. Remember I mentioned earlier on about Mofidalis having two men, two women, two men. This is where it's reflected because that was the lineup on the stage for Urban Trad as well. And the only thing that had really brought them any attention before the competition was that they ditched one of their members because she had allegedly attended a far-right rally. So it got too much publicity. I've been told by Dennis uh, Fund that that turned out possibly not to be true and that the broadcaster had to apologise afterwards for ditching her, but that was the story. Now, as I say, on the night, I, th- I was ignoring them. I think most of my friends and the journalists were ignoring them. They very nearly won the whole thing. It was just three points between Turkey winning, Belgium second, and Russia third. 
But it wasn't a surprise to everybody because the Swedish newspaper Expressen had done an exit poll from the dress rehearsal and the crowd that they spoke to had concluded that Belgium were the favourites and Expressen on the day of the contest printed the headline, Belgium will win. So if only I'd read that, I might have put some money on them as an each way, obviously. So it wasn't a surprise to everybody, but it was a surprise to me. Yeah, echoing some of the things you've been saying, both of you. Eurovision had been through some big changes when you compare it to that rather ghastly 1993 final. So the live orchestra had been replaced with pre-recording backing tapes. That started in 1999. Telephone voting had replaced almost all the jurors. There, I think, are only like two left in this year. This was also the final year where the contest took place on a single night. From 2004 onwards, we got the concept of semi-finals, first one and then two. Yeah, musically speaking, I also thought the songs were just starting to nudge towards your actual contemporary pop. There were far more up-tempo songs than 10 years previously, and I think a greater diversity of musical styles as well. It was the fourth of five finals that I intended in person. It was also, by quite some distance, the most drunk that I have ever been at Eurovision. We arrived early. There was a lot of vodka. We thought we were being sensible by avoiding beer because that would limit our toilet breaks. But the vodka measures were generous. By the time the actual show started, our group of friends were all cheerfully off our faces. We were having it large, in best Brits on the piss tradition. Flags were being borne down walkways. Oh, the words. That said, no amount of vodka in the world could disguise quite how bad the UK were. And I do remember us all turning to each other after Gemini finished and going, well, that was a bit crap. None of us expected Belgium to finish anywhere near second place. And when our group went out after the show and we met all the other Eurovision people in the club, most common comments we heard all night, and I know this from my contemporaneous notes, most common comments were, why did Belgium do so well? And also, why did Latvia do so badly? Because we all loved the home country entry, Hello from Mars by Fly, finished third from bottom. So there was just a sea of people walking around going, why Belgium? Why Belgium? Right. When I finally got to watch the show on TV back home a few days later, sober, it became a lot easier to understand why Belgium did so well. In terms of performance styles, this was a very busy final. There was a lot of frantic choreography, costume changes, assorted gimmickry. A lot of that must have been inspired by the winner from the previous year. It just threw everything but the kitchen sink into the staging. It turned a fairly unremarkable song into a winning song. And people were going, I want me some of that. And it was just, it left you breathless. Belgium, therefore, gave the listening public a chance to breathe. It was dignified, it was restrained, it was gently melodic, comparatively classy, if your idea of classy was at slightly aforementioned Enigma or Deep Forest or Adi Amos or Sacred Spirit or Secret Garden or Enya or Planad. There were loads of acts around like that, sort of coffee table world music. If that was your idea of classy, you might well have sighed with relief. Oh, proper music at last, and voted accordingly. There was a tradition of, of these kind of ethereal, folksy Eurovision entries. It stretched back to the 90s. It hadn't quite come to an end. This was the only such 2003 entry. Therefore, I think it hoovered up that entire ethereal, folksy voting demographic in one fell swoop and did well because of that. 
every episode of this podcast generates one unshakable earworm. This one is mine. It's been lodged in the brain for days. And I will say, although I don't think much of it, it is a far more welcome guest than the previous occupant, which was Shawadiwadi's When. I love that if you go on Wikipedia and read down the list, it says, you know, such a song, English, 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 Russian, English, imaginary, when it's talking about the language. <laughs> and I remember one more thing. The singer made interpretive hand movements throughout the song as if illustrating the meaning of these completely fictitious words. I don't know what was going on inside her head. It turned up in the running order in between two much better songs, in my opinion, as well, because Fly, Hello from Mars, it's brilliant. It's great. Only one country gave it some points. I think only Estonia. I think it was Estonia gave it points and nobody else gave it anything, which was staggering because it is fabulous. And then after the Belgium one, there was a song called 80s Coming Back, which I think was the Estonian entry. And that is also magnificent. So it's like why, why the voting here is just weird. Tell us about, why did you shake your head when I was talking about Alf Poyer? Well, you've just mentioned two of my favourites, Hello from Mars. I loved 80s Coming Back, Rufus. Went absolutely spare when that came on. Two of my other favourites were the opening two songs. There was Open Your Heart by Birgitta for Iceland. Love that. That would have done much better later in the draw. My other favourite was Alf Poyer for Austria. The title of the song escapes me. He was on second. It's all about Frau Holler and uh, getting die Voller from... Waldemenschzelt. Waldemenschzelt. Performance arts, darling. Absolutely wonderful. I got that. It's really lodged in my head as well. I, I think I'm appreciating Sunami more this week than I have at any point since it originally existed. The signing-ish is funny because it does look like they're signing and it makes me wonder whether they were inadvertently signing anything and may have been sending out some really confusing messages to people who understood BSL or ASL <laughs> without meaning to. Wouldn't you have to do that in the full sign language alphabet as there are no actual words? I mean, it, it must have been exhausting. The other interesting thing about it is that when you listen to the commentary, the BBC commentary of the night, Terry Wogan at no point during the entire thing references how terrible Gemini were. He he blames the entire thing on a post-Iraqi backlash, he calls it. Mm. You could play it to a, a somebody who's never seen it for the first time and they would go, oh, God, that's out of tune. It's so obvious that it's out of key that I didn't understand why it was never referenced. The BBC can't, Nick. They're completely hamstrung by being BBC employees. You, there's never been uh, honest evaluations of UK entries. That's right. For all his snarkiness, Terry Wogan never said a word against any of the Eurovision entries. I mean, he didn't dare. The out of key thing is interesting. One theory, and I subscribe to it actually, is that her out of Gemini... She was singing in key to herself. It just wasn't the key of the backing track. There'd been a problem with a monitor. She couldn't hear the backing track. She, she thought, well, I better start the song. She stayed consistent, but she was a semitone out, and that's why it sounded so awful. I think halfway through the song, she actually corrects it and she goes back into key, but the damage has then been done. We've had a pretty rubbish record for the last 20-odd years at Europe since this, but... I think it is worth remembering it took us 48 years to come last yeah we got points in every other of those previous 47 attempts essentially or whenever we turned up until that point we were great until we won it in 97 we were really good at eurovision we we were spectacularly successful at which point i just want to say to any of our listeners who might be thinking it's just because it's all political that theory does not hold water 
The UK aren't doing badly because it's all political, because that's not how the voting works. You are voting for your favourite. You are not voting against a country that you don't like. Political voting would only work if you were sat at home and you thought, God, that UK song is absolutely fantastic. But oh, hang on a minute, Iraq or oh, hang on a minute, Brexit. Therefore, I'm not going to vote for it. That, my friends, is a big delusion. The UK have done badly because they've sent appalling songs. They haven't taken it seriously. And hopefully, now that Sam Ryder brought it almost, well, actually did bring it home, come to think of it, last year, hopefully that will start to change. Yeah. I don't think anyone, any casual observer of the Eurovision, could name a UK entry in the last 25 years, which they honestly think should have won. It's delusional. I think it's a lot better now. The media and the BBC are a lot more realistic. And that's ironic, given that we have now reached a point where we were successful again last year. But it's taken 25 years to travel that road, to get the right people involved, and to start looking at the contests and see what makes people vote. And Sam Ryder's song and performance last year just hit the mark perfectly for that and it's made his career it's made his career and demonstrated that you can represent the uk at eurovision and use that as a springboard to success yes you can see um, Mornskin do it and now they've seen sam Ryder do it and his spectacular enthusiasm for the whole thing in the weeks running up to it right across europe which was something we never do either come on then let's move forward to This is the entry for Azerbaijan, sung by Farid Mamadov and titled Hold Me. Azerbaijan have won Eurovision just once in 2011 with Ellen Nicky's Running Scared. 2013 Eurovision was held in Malmo in Sweden. It was won by Denmark. That was only teardrops by Emily de Forest. The UK were represented by Bonnie Tyler performing Believe in Me, and that limped in in 19th position. So out of this random exercise, we've had two contests out of our six that were won by Luxembourg, and now we have the second of the six that's been won by Denmark. How weird is that? Azerbaijan were on the crest of a wave at this point. They're not now. We can pontificate about why the reasons for that might be. But in my opinion, their 2011 winner is one of the worst, certainly the worst of the 21st century. It's so unmemorable. And ugh. But this song is essentially a, a Swedish production with Swedish or Swedish-based songwriters, Swedish backing singers. And it looks Swedish to me. It's very slick. They've thought about what they want to do on stage and they've come up with the novelty of a man in a box. It's easy to laugh at these gimmicky things like this and the hamster wheel, but it does what it set out to do and it made the song memorable. The song itself isn't that memorable. I I still struggle to remember how this song goes even now and I've been playing it again this week and it still hasn't sunk in. So I think it had a lot to do with the production on the stage, the man in the box, and just in case it was worrying anyone with its slightly homoerotic tones as they pressed up against the glass, then they bring the woman in in the massive dress in the end, just so you're absolutely clear that his love interest is female and not the bloke in the box. And apparently the bloke in the box is supposed to represent his shadow and the woman represents love, obviously, because it's all about love in the end, isn't it? It's a strange song. It's slick. Like I say, it's not that memorable as a song, but I can see from the production why it did so well. He was kind of kept hidden away in uh, Malmö, so my journalist friends tell me, and no one really knows very much about him. Well, what I find very interesting is that he came second in Eurovision, which I think might have been a springboard to some kind of career, but there's been absolutely nothing. He's disappeared. I don't think he's even released anything. So uh, it's very odd. 
But apart from that, it's slick, reasonable pop, but not catchy enough for my liking to hold my interest for very long. Chris is absolutely right. I mean, Azerbaijan only made their debut in the contest in 2008, I think it was, and finished in the top 10 in the first six years of arriving, which was just staggering. Nobody does that. That is incredibly bizarre. One of my absolute claims to fame is that I used to write a Eurovision betting preview for a popular Irish bookmaker. And I actually tipped Ellie and Nikki to win in 2011. They were about the fourth favourites, and I stuck my neck out and I tipped them to win. So a little bit of uh, I could pat myself on the back for that because I actually did pick the winner that year. I agree, it's not fantastic, but I did think in the context of that year it was probably going to win. So I was right back into Eurovision by this point. I'd bit, always been a fan. I, I By this point, I was buying the CD, watching all the semi-final, right back into the like nitty gritty of it and have been ever since so last 10 years 12 years a bit absolutely immersed in the whole thing I'll tell you anything you need to know so i was right back in it by this point and this was the point and chris is absolutely right this is the point where the staging became a massive part of the contest they were 25 or 26 songs long the two things that determined generally speaking whether you won were where you were in the draw and what the staging was like if it was a great song that helped there were years that went by where all the winners came from round about the 15th to the 20th 21st 22nd in the draw they all came from the same place in the draw it was never the first song it was never the last song i think conchita bucked that trend a little bit because i think they went off at about 11th in the draw i think so they were quite early but it was won for many years by six or seven songs that appeared in the sort of three quarters of the way through the show. And this happened in this year and Farid was around about the same time. And it was also the staging was the thing, because when you got to the end of it, there's so many songs it been going on for hours. You were like, right. So you remember Mams and his chalk man on the screen behind him and him interacting with the chalk man. You remember that. That is absolutely iconic the staging of that and the man in the perspex box is the same my daughter we talk about eurovision she remembers the man in the box and the fact he was upside down and he was on the box and then he was mirroring him and stuff it's incredibly powerful and it's a way of getting your song just you've just got to be at the front of memory by the time the telephone lines open I don't think that's necessarily been quite the same recently but there was a period where the staging that's what it was all about I remember this at the time, not particularly fondly. Only Teardrops is, for me, by some distance, the best song in the 2013 contest. I don't think that was a surprise winner. Having listened to this song again recently, I love it. I don't know what it is about it. I think you're right. It is a very slickly produced song. It's sort of a power ballad of sorts, but I think it's passionately done. I think it's well performed. I think it's catchy. I think the staging of it is great. I think the whole package of it added together makes it a really powerful and successful entry. And I think at the time I was like, how has this come second? But now I totally get it in the context of everything else that happened last year. So I, this has been a real find, refined for me because I actually really like it. Okay. If we were not voting on six individual songs, and if we were instead voting on which decade we actually thought as a whole was tops for Eurovision, I'd probably pick the 2000s. I think a lot of that is because 
that's when I got the chance to go over and watch the shows and I did some journalism related to it. So I felt part of the Eurovision family. But the 2000s will always be the most special Eurovision decade for me. When you get to the 2010s, that recovery from the doldrums that took place fairly rapidly in the 2000s, you get to 2010, this is where the show just becomes stratospherically massive. And also it's when the entries absolutely fully caught up with and embraced contemporary pop. Up until fairly recently, you could say, well, it's almost like contemporary pop. It's about two or three years out of date. I think this year's entries, they just are contemporary pop. There's very little about today's Eurovision which feels dated. And there is a part of me that misses that camp corniness of years gone by. There is some there, but not in the same way. It's more knowing now. It was more innocent then. Eurovision is still hugely entertaining. It's more popular than ever. That has to be a good thing. I've got a lot of time for 2010s Eurovision. Just don't quite love it in the same way. I looked through the 2013 recaps and I thought that this Azerbaijan staging stood out from everything else. Elaborate sets, cleverly worked technical gimmicks. They were certainly a thing by then, but they had yet to become mandatory. Uh, so while Farid Mamadop's clear perspect box does look a little bit tame by 2020 standards, definitely stood out in 2013. I have to say Farid Mamadop is a distractingly handsome chap. And having image searched him, <clears throat> he clearly takes very good care of his upper body shape. Let's leave it at that. Um, so all the shenanigans with his alter ego in that perspect box, they do rather occupy more of my attention than the actual song. But then, yeah, Lady in Red comes on with a long train. Oh, it's goodbye, Sam, hello, Samantha, and off he trots. Oh, well, fun while it lasted. As a song, Hold Me Strikes Me is pretty generic for its time, really. It puts me in mind of the two Russian entries that Dima Balan brought to Eurovision, much the same sort of period. It is capably crafted. It's slickly sold. Its high placing doesn't feel undeserved. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to do it, and they got a result. Fair play. This is normally the point of the podcast where we, the team, cast our personal votes for the six songs. We are, as always, looking for first, second and third favourites and your most bad and hated, or at least your least favourite. And Nick, I will ask you to start, please. Mm, tricky. It's a tricky one, this. I'm going to give my minus one most bad and hated, I think, to the 2000s, to um, Enigma version two, Urban Trouds, Imaginary Language, Sanami, just dreary. Don't think I like that one. I'm going to give the Maison, I'm going to put Tovapa and Sonia's Better the Devil You Know, I think. Sorry, Sonia. One point to RS2, which has been a very lovely discovery. I'm going to give two points to the 1980s, to Ofra Hazar and Hi, Hi, Hi for the industrial background. And I don't know how this happened. This has only happened today. I'm going to give top points to Farid Mamadov and his Perspex box because I just think it epitomises everything that's great about Eurovision. Catchy song, contemporary, brilliant staging, period of Eurovision that I really loved it. So all those things combined. Interesting. Um, none of our votes tally on this, Nick, at all. 
I've ranked them totally differently. So my minus one point goes to Sonia from the 1990s. As a song, it's just nothing. It's less than nothing. Met Zone are the two most recent ones. Urban Trad, didn't get it at the time. Do like it a bit more now, but not enough to raise it above the Met. Farid Mamadov, um, efficient, but it doesn't press my buttons. I'm like, Farid Mamadov. Okay, into the top three. Third position, one point goes to Ofrahaza with high. Two points go to Mossadadis with RF2. My three points are going to Esther Afarim's Tovapa, that lovely piece of early 60s chanson. Chris. So my bottom place, unfortunately, is going to cancel yours out because I've got Esther in last place. I don't dislike it. She sings it very well, but it's just not kind of song that I really want to hear again and it's not made any lasting impression on me. So sorry about that. My muddling around in fourth and fifth are Sonia and Farid. I thought I liked Sonia's song more than I do, but in this selection, so there are certainly three songs that I like a lot more. So in third place, Urban Trad, which I'm appreciating a lot more now than I did at the time. The top two I absolutely love. So Afrahaza gets second, and Mofedales is my top pick from 1973. All right. I have the results. It's quite late in the day, but I'm going to try to do the Eurovision style if it all falls apart. Je suis désolé. So, apparently, in last position, with, not with nul point, with uh, minus une point, we have Sonia for the 1990s. In the Met Zone, with actual nul point, therefore earning nul point, we have Urban Trad for the 2000s. Also in the Met Zone, with deux points, earning nul point. For 1960s, we have Esther Farim, Ton va pas. This is our top three. So, deux points for third position goes to Farid Mamadov for the 2010s Azerbaijan. Deux points for second position goes to Ofra Haza's Hai. Israel, 1980s, and just scraping ahead of Ofra uh, with trois points, we have RF2 by Mossadades, Spain, 1970s. Now then, listeners, this is where you get to have your say too. What you need to do, just like we've done, set the example for you, give us your first, second and third favourite songs in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated or merely your least favourite if you want to make any additional comments, they are more than welcome and we'll read a selection of them out in the results bulletin. However, if you just want to submit your votes without the pressure of having to come up with comments, that is also fine. Those votes are equally valid. Various ways to vote. Our favourite way to vote is through our Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. That is where you can subscribe to the podcast Join the Witch Decade Sporters Club. Costs you the price of one latte per month, £3 a month. You'll get email updates every time we publish a new episode, which is a damn sight easier than trying to work it out on Twitter. You get password protective access to your own comment section so you can comment in private. And more importantly, you'll be helping us cover the costs of hosting this podcast, which um, are considerable and 
it would be nice if we could recoup them somewhere along the lines. If you want to subscribe to Patreon and vote that way, we'll be forever in your debt. However, voting is also accepted via Twitter at WhichDecadeTops, Gmail, WhichDecadeIsTops at gmail.com. Facebook, just search the name of the podcast, up will come the page. Your voting deadline is 6pm UK time, Wednesday the 17th of May. That is following Eurovision weekend, which I hope we will all enjoy. Before I sign up, Nick and Chris, I'm just going to ask you, because I'm assuming both of you have heard all the entries. I haven't heard all the entries. But if I could ask you to make some predictions for first, second, third and last, could we do that maybe? Nick, can we start with you? Oh, that's a very good question. I actually think that it is a more open contest this year than the bookies would have you believe. So Sweden are the queen of Eurovision. Lorene is back. I like it, but I don't think it's as good as Euphoria, but she's still the favourite to win. But I am going to stick my neck out slightly, and I think, again, even though I don't like it, I'm going to go for Finland with a cha-cha-cha which I think will hit enough with the televoters. I think Sweden will finish probably top three. And Norway. Let's go Queen of the Kings for Norway. Last place, Germany. Germany have sent the heavy metal this year, and it's not the best. And can I have a prediction for where May Muller will finish for the UK? I think it's too generic to win. I think it's perfectly fine, but <laughs> I played it to my daughter for the first time, and she said, this is like something Malta would send which I think is probably fair. Uh, bottom half of the left-hand side of the scoreboard, 13th. Chris, how about your predictions? You're usually pretty good on this, as I recall. I hope you weren't expecting any original thought from me, because I'm almost going to echo exactly what Nick's just said. So people do seem to be assuming that Lorraine will win again, and I kind of hope not, because mm, it's a good song, but it's not as good as Euphoria, and... I don't like the way that it was taken for granted before people had even heard the song that she was one of the favourite. That's how bad it's become now. My favourite is Finland's Cha Cha Cha, and I think it would be great if it won. And I think when people see it on stage, apart from some people throwing up their hands in horror, they're going to think, oh my God, this song is really weird, but it's going to stick in their heads. It's a brilliant song. It's a song in different parts. I can't quite describe what genre of song it is. You just have to listen to it. My next favourite is Norway, Queen of the Kings. And that's just a damn good thumping pop song. I read that they're not presenting it very well, so maybe it won't do too well. I can't make a prediction for last unless, as you say, you go for one of the countries that's automatically in the final. Because what you have to do at this stage, before we've had the semi-finals, to try and work out who will be last in the final. It's either got to be one of the automatic qualifiers, which you think is really bad, or you've got to try and work out which countries are going to qualify, but only around 8th, ninth, or 10th, because they're the ones that will come bottom of the scoreboard unless there's some dramatic change of fortune between semi-final night and final night. So I can't say. Chris, do you have a prediction for the UK? Nick said around about 13th, bottom half, left-hand side. I must admit, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking in the 6th to 10, more like 10th. When the draw was made, the UK drew last. Now, that used to be really good, but in a 26-song final, and I've experienced this myself at, at parties, people are losing interest by about song 20. Yeah. By the time you've got to song 26, people are thinking, oh, should we get, get the food out? Has anyone been to the toilet? Blah, blah, blah. 
and, and I think maybe what might have been seen as a plum slot before is is not that now. But it would be a fantastic ending to the contest to have the host country performing last. And it's a good song. I like it. And I think it will do all right. And like you say, definitely on the left-hand side of the scoreboard. I think the last song to win from last might have been La Vie Estacado from 1983. Ah, well, Katrina and the Waves were last, weren't they? Were they? All right, okay. But Chris is right. Last place these days is an absolute not a chance. Yeah. Okay, well, I hope you've enjoyed our Eurovision special. We will be back to the tried and trusted standard which decade formula with the next episode. And at that point, DJ Trev will once again be in our midst. So thank you very much indeed to Chris Higgins for stepping in and being so knowledgeable about Eurovision. Cheers, Chris. Thank you. It's been great fun. I've really enjoyed it, thank you. Thanks very much, Nick. And that's a subject close to your heart as well. Bonsoir. And goodbye from me. Which decade is Tops for Pops?